start out with a, a quick question. Why four Gospels? Just something that I've been meditating a lot. Um, I feel like a lot of what I spend time thinking and learning about as I study is, is how to study hermeneutics. You know, what are the principles? You know, what am I supposed to be focusing on? What does, you know, what's, what's God? There's just an infinite amount of things to think about when you read God's word. And I'm more and more um, convinced that every word of God is true. I've been convinced of that for a long time. That's, a, that's a, an astounding thing, every single word. But it's also not a new thing. I'm also becoming increasingly convinced that how God says things is all part of the picture of inspiration. You know, what, not just what he says, but how he says it, what he doesn't say, how he says something in one place and doesn't say it in another place, how, how the, the accounts of Scripture are put together. Um, it's all part of inspiration. You know, I, I keep coming back to the, this thought that you know, God could have just given us a bunch of bullet points or a, he could have given us a systematic theology and he gave us you know, biographies and histories and poetry and yes, some very clear doctrinal statements, uh, but all of this is the specific, explicit intention of God's Holy Spirit. And so, yeah, we're absolutely to be noticing the things, the, the, the truth statements that are made, but then there's this whole question of how the Bible is put together, what he draws our attention to, how he tells the story. And uh, um, what, what's the last thing we, we run across in Matthew 26? I mean, not a trick question. It's right there. Yeah, Peter's denial. You know, Peter. And he denies Christ. says he wept bitterly. Uh, I won't get into the, I did a little studying on the Greek. It's a really strong term, this, this idea of this bitter disappointment. You know, he has done something that can never be fixed. It's, it's just awful. And he's, we, you know, we leave chapter 26 with Peter weeping bitterly. And, I, and, you know, we all know, I hope, that chapter and verses are not part of God's inspiration. Um, they, they came la later. They're very convenient. But immediately upon the story of Peter's denial and his bitter disappointment, his bitter uh, remorse, we go right to the story of what happened um, with Judas. Um, so let's start reading uh, chapter 27. I'm just, I'm going to read... Um, Now let's just read the read through that that part about Judas, and we'll pick it up from there. Uh, so, verse uh, verse one of chapter twenty-seven. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer. Well, Peter's also his betrayer, but not in the same sense. Seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned 
by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. I think it's really worth noticing at this point because they're not the price of blood yet. This is a really clear indication of the intention of the council. We want this guy dead. Um, so this is premeditated. Um, so, but it's the price of blood. They consulted together in verse 7 and bought with them the potter, potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. And we'll pick it up in a, in a few minutes as we, as we, after we give this some attention. So, so here's Peter wept bitterly. And we have Judas. Says he is remorseful. And I have run across the idea that, um, you know, this, is, this isn't real repentance. Um, you know, it's something less than repentance. It's a really strong word. Um, it's not metanoia, that what, you know, what we classically see over and over in scriptures as, you know, as repentance. But metanoia isn't always used of, of repenting and of your sins and turning to God in salvation. Uh, it's it's a change of mind. This this is meta. I, I, I won't try to pronounce it, but it's it's the same thing. A change of of course of affections. It's a pretty strong word. Um, it it I think it's very much parallel to Peter weeping bitterly. Um, you know, Judas and Peter. Or I, I think as you read this. The idea is look at them together. They are both undone by their wrongdoing. Peter's, you know, weakness, uh, Judas's malicious betrayal, but Judas has thought better of it. Apparently, it says that he became remorseful when he saw that he was going to be saw that he was condemned when he saw what the what the uh, what was intended was you know, this crucifixion, this murder of Jesus. Um, I don't know what, G- what Judas thought, but apparently he thought that he was somehow going to profit and Jesus was going to be pushed out of the way. And maybe, I don't he seems a little bit speculative, but he seems a bit surprised that this is going to, oh, this, oh I, I'm getting him killed. I'm not just getting him arrested. I'm responsible for his death. This is serious. And he is you know, bitterly, you know, upset with himself, remorseful, and in a sense, repentant. So, as you compare the two, um, like I said, I, you know, I've seen people try to make the case that this is just, he's just not that sorry. I, he really was. But what, what's the difference? As you compare the two, what's the difference between Peter, who we know, you know, we know the rest of the story. Peter becomes, 
you know, the leading apostle of Jesus. Judas goes and hangs himself. What, what's the difference? Like we're, yeah, bring forth fruits of repentance. Yeah. Um, Peter eventually did. Why did he? Yeah, I think there, you can't ignore this, this, this idea that it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I'm quoting from Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Somehow, Christ worked in Peter, and Peter went on. And that same work was not done in Judas, and Judas despaired. Now from it, go ahead, Ty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So would we say that that Judas um, wasn't really his fault? He couldn't help it. He was he was just condemned to be the son of perdition. He was born that way. He's just you know nothing he could do about it. Well, hopefully we wouldn't turn our minds quite that way, Judas is culpable for his sin. Peter's also culpable for his sin. You understand what I, you know, the, the, the legal term culpable is from the Latin to be blameworthy. This isn't, Judas didn't just betray Christ sort of as this mechanical um, fulfilling of God's will. Judas was guilty. And Peter was equally guilty, and I think that, uh, from the from the eternal, we have both a, an eternal and a temporal perspective. From the eternal perspective, we understand that God works or withholds His work as He sees fit, but we're never ever excused to use that kind of thinking for an excuse for oh well, you know, you know, if my neighbor is to be saved, he'll be saved. It doesn't really matter what I do. Yes, it does matter what I do. I'm to be speaking the gospel to him. There is, there is responsibility for what we do or fail to do. And what Judas did, and I think from the, from the temporal perspective, from the perspective of space and time, the difference between Peter and Judas is the difference between hope and despair. And you might go so far as to, as to think that from the temporal perspective, now from the eternal perspective, could it have turned out any differently? No. But from a, but from a temporal perspective, from an instructive perspective, what are we supposed to be learning? Is no matter how badly we've offended our Lord, there is, if we will trust him, hope. Judas did not trust him and therefore had no hope. Peter was bitterly remorseful and, and, and truly repentant, but, but just bitterly hurt deep down by what he had done, and yet he still had hope. Christ had told him, I'm, you know, you're going to be sifted uh, by Satan, but I have prayed for you. I won't, we won't go back to the, to the passage right now. Um, but hope and despair are really powerful things. Consider the fact that, that Judas hanged himself 
that makes a statement all by itself. Um, any right-thinking human who understands who God is and what it means to be in his image ought to be contending with eternity. You know, our lives are, eter- are matters that are eternal, and there's an eternal destiny. And Judas apparently was more upset by the impact on his temporal life than he was the impact on his eternity. Um, because his eternity is, uh, yeah, he should be scared to death to hang himself, no matter how much he doesn't trust that he can be forgiven. He, you know, it, it should be an awful thing to contemplate. But I think what we're seeing is, is Judas is saying by his actions that what I am bitterly remorseful about is my own sense of well-being, my own sense of being a, a person who did the right thing, maybe the scorn of my community. There's all sorts of effects of sin that it has on our temporal lives that bring shame to us. Um, apparently, I don't think I don't think there's you can conclude anything else that Judas was more he was I think truly deeply sorry but sorry about what he had done to himself temporally in some in some sense he obviously wasn't thinking what have I done to myself eternally um, what's my what's my hope so there's this you know this this uh, eternal import of the soul and of what we, who we are and what we do. And Peter, or Peter got that by God's grace. No matter what I've done, my only hope is to keep going, seek forgiveness, serve my Lord. I'm ruined, but I keep going and I try to serve my Lord. And, and the Lord turns even the bitterest things fruitful in repentance. And you know, Judas is... despairing and hopeless and apparently not recognizing at all the import of the of the eternality of his soul um, so this it's it's it's, it's very um, sobering you know we read these things and um, they're they're true but they're also supposed to resonate with us you know, who isn't ashamed? And the answer to that is, all I have to know is that you're human. We're all ashamed. Um, I've had discussions with students um, where I kind of make the point to them, you know, we'll talk about human depravity. You know, we talk about, you know, the, the doctrine of, of, of total depravity. You know, are people all really bad? Are, you know, and sometimes, you know, kids, well, they're not so bad. They live in a nice family. And I've said a number of times asked, you know, a classroom full of students saying, if you think you're okay, how many of you would be willing to share all of your deepest and darkest thoughts publicly? Just go ahead, just stand up and tell us, you know, the worst thing about you. And they all, they look at each other and they all know they all know that all of us, all of us have this deep shame and failure within us. There's nobody who wants the rest of the world to know what they're really like at their worst. Um, and 
And yet, Christ says, there's hope. And Judas found no hope. He found that so overpowering that he even lost sight of, its, of, of what it was doing to him eternally and just fled for eternity from his, from his shame. Um, so th- there's this, as we read, it's true, it happened. Yep, it's also full of pathos. Um, you know, we, we run into the Greek word, you know, for Jesus is called by John, the word, the logos. And then you know, in, in Greek thought, there's also the, the idea of, you, know, you have logos, ethos, pathos, or sort of like the, 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 the basic human values. Um, and yeah, this would correspond to, you know, roughly, it's not exactly, they're not, they're not, they don't mean exactly the same thing, but roughly, the truth, what is good and right, and what is, um, what, what is of the heart, what is, what is beautiful and impactful and, and impacts our affections. As we re- read the scriptures, I'm just increasingly convicted that uh, the, the scriptures are full of not only truth, but also, you know, goodness and, and this heart impact, this pathos of life. We are all souls that have common hopes and shames, and you know, they're individual, but they're also common. And we're, and we're to be reading scripture. We, we should read of Judas and think, oh, the warning that that is. You know, what do we do with our shame? Well, Judas gave a terrible answer, a terrible example. Peter's answer was, was painful. You know, what, you know, what do you do with shame? You endure it, and you bring it to your Lord, and you, and you go on and seek forgiveness. Um, so, go ahead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. I, yeah. I think. I think. What, what we. In that context, though, we want to we, we want to realize it wasn't some like cheap surface kind of eh, not real repentance. It was deep and heartfelt, but it wasn't godly, hoping in God repentance. So yeah, not true repentance, but you know, a deep sorrow. What do you do with that? Well, it goes on to godly repentance, or it goes on to despair. Those really are the only paths. You know, when, when you have, you, know, you, you are conscious of your shame and the depth of your, of your sinfulness. There's only a couple of directions to go. One is stoicism, you know, just grin and bear it. That's awful. That ends in death. One is despair that leads to something like Judas. That's death. There's hope in Christ. Yeah, go ahead. 
not to be repented of. Yeah. Yeah, the sorrow of the world produces death. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Okay, um, just a quick note. Back up a little bit to the beginning of the chapter. I just thought this it's, it's interesting to think about. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Um, just an ex- a brief exhortation to think in terms of reading everything in context. You know, you hear it from me over and over. I'll never miss a chance to to beat the drum. Context, context, context. Does does all always mean every single one without exception? No. Here, does this mean that every single chief priest and elder of the council plotted to put Jesus to death? Well, it tells us in uh, in Luke chapter 23. If you, I'm not even going to turn there, but I'll, I'll just just a, as a note, it, it refers to Joseph of Arimathea who gave Jesus his tomb, and it said it says he was a member of the council and he did not consent to this. Nicodemus, it's not as explicit that he was a member of the council, but he probably was because he was present um, and, and uh, objecting to, to finding Jesus guilty without a trial. Does, you know, um, well, you know actually, actually, now I wrote that down. I don't know where I wrote it. My eyes are not falling on it, but there's a, a passage where, um, you know, they're, they're condemning Jesus to death and, and uh, Nicodemus is saying, does our law allow a man to be put to death without, without a trial? And paraphrasing, um, Nicodemus was also begging the body of Jesus. We don't know that Nicodemus was, you know, in, in the council. He was a Pharisee. Not all Pharisees were members of the council, but it seems that he was present at, present at some key times and may have been a member of the council. So, you know, all can often mean, you know, the general consensus, you know, the body of, you know, the council all decided. Does that mean every single council member wanted Jesus dead? No, I mean, it's, it's clear that it doesn't. But the council as a whole did. Sort of like, you know, all, you know, all Judea coming out to hear Jesus or John preach. Uh, did all Judea go out to hear John preach? Every single person in Judea? Uh, I suppose it's possible, but I really don't think that's um, what we're being asked to believe. So just you know, read, read things like that in, in context. Uh, there were people of the Jews, of the leaders of the Jews, who were not cooperating with this murderous scheme. Um, so we read about Judas, and then we have uh, this passage uh, Beginning at verse 9, it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. They took the 30 pieces of silver, and we've read it. I won't read the whole thing. The gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. If you turn back to Jeremiah chapter 32, and I'm not sure I have anything that I would say is definitive about how, some of my questions about how the, the Old Testament is applied to the New Testament is a little mysterious sometimes because if you read chapter 32 of Jeremiah beginning at verse 6 Jeremiah said the word of the Lord came to me 
saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy the field which is in Anahoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, said, Please buy me, buy my field. Um, skip down to verse 9. Um, I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, and I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. This whole, this whole scenario in Jeremiah seems to be about the fact that judgment is coming on Jerusalem. They're going to be taken into captivity by Babylon. And yet Jeremiah goes ahead and takes, pays for, takes ownership of a field at the at the behest of the Lord's direction. And it seems to be sort of this testimony that the judgment is not final. There's hope. Again, we come back to that idea of hope. There is hope beyond the captivity. You're going to come back. Now, Jeremiah himself probably didn't come back. I don't think he lived to be that old. But the Jews will come back and deeds will be honored and land will be owned and Jerusalem will be, be restored. That's sort of the picture in Jeremiah 32. Um, I, I'm not sure what the, what the exact correspondence is other than lifting the quote out of Jeremiah and applying it to buying the potter's field. I, I just point it out because you know, I think it's, it's not always crystal clear how the Old Testament, I'm sorry, how the New Testament writers understand by the Holy Spirit, what the application of Old Testament scriptures are. There's something in this purchase of a field by Jeremiah in obedience to the Lord, this potter's field that is looking forward to the, to the blood money of Judas being used to buy the potter's field. Uh, I, I suppose you could say there is, there is something, some figure in here about hope beyond judgment um, it's just it's, it's, a, it's a little mysterious. I don't know if anybody wants, uh, has an idea and wants to comment on how that passage is, is handled, but I, I, I think it's something worth noticing. Um, Zechariah chapter 11 talks about um, also the price that is paid uh, for God's anointed one. It's, it, it, it's, it's a little mysterious how it all comes together in, in Matthew 27. Um, it's worth contemplating. That's about as much as I can say about it. Um, Ty? Well, let's look at Jeremiah 19. Go and get a potter's earth and flask. Take some of the elders. Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with this passage. It's um, again, it's there. Yeah, I think they're both in view. In, in my opinion, it's this. It's actually the uh, the the um, a, a similar figure of buying something that will then stand after God's judgment is over. Um, I won't read the whole passage right now. Um, there's also a whole question about the number 30. Um, 
because in different places uh, you run different numbers of shekels, but what's the currency exchange between 30 pieces of silver and shekels? There's also there's there's details like that. Yeah, I find it a little mysterious. Um, Oh, Zechariah would it would be included as a section. Yeah. Yeah, I think the Zechariah passage is, is more explicitly quoted, but then yeah, but then they say here, oh, he's, he's that's fulfilled by Jeremiah the prophet. Yeah, and they, maybe that's the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't bring it up to to make any point other than to just encourage us thinking it. It's it's there's things to that deserve meditation about how the Old Testament is used by the New Testament writers. It's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I'll, I'm willing to admit my ignorance as far as drawing a firm and final conclusion. Uh, I do agree that, that, the, that the words seem to be more directly drawn from the Zechariah 11 passage. So let's go on to Pilate. Talked about Judah. Judas, sorry, uh, keep talking about the judgment. I'm thinking of the, the, of the tribe of Judah. Um, so they, the, the council condemns Jesus, but the council has no power to execute someone under Roman law. Okay, that, that's in the background. So they want him dead, but they can't just go kill him. Uh, if, they, if, if Jerusalem was... Under an independent Jewish king, that would have been the more natural thing to do, but they're under Rome, and Rome has a governor. The governor's name is Pilate. Um, so they deliver him to Pilate, and uh, Ty talked last week about how there's uh, this whole series of events uh, where Pilate sends him to Herod, Herod sends him back to Pilate. He thinks he's going to hear it. Herod's you know, very interested in Jewish prophecy. He's, he's, he, Herod's like a quarter Jew and very, he sees himself as, as a sort of a, a, a hero of the Jewish nation, which was you know, completely delusional. Um, but that's the way Herod apparently saw himself. And he expected to hear some, something really interesting from this famous Jewish prophet, which they had arrested. And he just He's disappointed. He's just just a guy. He doesn't even. He won't even answer for himself. Which we want to talk about that too. Jesus not defending himself. That's that's really interesting. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Um. So Matthew just goes past all that. We don't we don't see Herod. That happened. That's that's part of the series of events. But Matthew's just talking about Jesus before Pilate. And pick it up at verse eleven with me. And it says, "Now Jesus stood." before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. This steadfast refusal to defend himself, even though he had a, an absolutely sound defense. 
Verse 13, then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, what do you want me, who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with, it, with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all, careful about understanding all, they all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Notice the uh, parallel phrase. Pilate's telling the Jews who want Jesus dead, you see to it, just like the Jews who want Jesus dead told Judas when he when he was remorseful, it's your problem. You see to it. It's on you. It's a euphemism for this is your responsibility, Jews. Your responsibility, Jews. Judas, not our problem that you betrayed a man inappropriately. That's your problem. Um, So there's there's a parallel phrase there that, that, uh, that we should notice. And all the people answered, here's their response. That's fine. Let it be on us. My paraphrase, you know, the, the Dave Liebing paraphrase version. Uh, what it actually says is all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now let's pause there for a second and just consider Pilate. Because I think, again, this is all part of the picture of doing the wrong thing, trying not to do the wrong thing, being sorry for the wrong thing. This is all part of the picture with Peter, with Judas, and now we got Pilate. Is Pilate innocent? It says right there, I am innocent, he claims. I want nothing to do with this. I wash my hands. It's on you, Jews. I am innocent. Was he? Why not? I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, I can remember being young, and I, my, my family, I was not well taught in the Bible, I didn't really have the big picture, but, you know, I'd go to, with my family to a Christmas service, and, you know, or an Easter service, and I'd read about Pilate, and I always felt sorry for him. Gosh, Pilate seems like an okay guy, why do, why do people hate him so much? He, he's trying to do the right thing, he doesn't want to kill Jesus. I kind of feel bad for him. Am I the only one that's ever felt that way? Maybe so. I don't. 
I doubt it, because maybe I'm the only one in here. Why is Pilate just as guilty as the rest of them when, he's, when he makes every indication that he does not find Jesus to be an evildoer, he does not want to kill him? What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. So why why do we consider him complicit then in the death of this innocent man? Right. Yeah, I got all the power. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. But still, why, why is he guilty? Why is he? We, we, I think we all understand he's complicit in Jesus' murders. I don't care. I don't care what he says about his innocence. I don't care what the Jews say about his blood be upon us. I think that's really significant that they want to be guilty of Jesus' death. That's really significant. Um, You might even say it's historically significant, but why do we all understand Pilate to be complicit in the murder of Jesus? Yeah. What's the choice Pilate made? Yeah. I'm going to let this happen. And again, you know, we read these things. What are, what are we to be learning? What does this mean to me? Here's Pilate. You know, we're, in a, we're in an age which talks a lot about identity. Who are you? That's a, that's a valid question. It's getting answered in all sorts of corrupt ways in our society. But who are we? What am I? Who am I? That's really a valid question. I'm an image bearer of the living and the true God. I'm a, lot of, I'm, I'm a husband. I'm a father. You know, identity is really... A serious thing. Pilate makes the choice to rest, to, to continue to rest his identity in who he understood himself to be, a Roman governor, one who is charged with keeping the peace with the Jews, one who is charged with representing Roman law. And all that is who Pilate was. Well, against that, it's, well, there's this innocent man. For me to do the right thing and free the innocent man, it's going to compromise who I am as a Roman governor who's charged with keeping the peace in this conquered territory. I'd rather let the innocent man die than let go of who I am let go of my position, let go of what I understand myself to be as a Roman governor. And, I mean, it's, it's hard to you know, close the door on who you think you are and, who, and what your identity, what your true identity actually is as you see yourself and follow Christ. It's hard to do that. It's death. It's, I think it's the very thing Jesus is talking about um, when he says it in several places, um, John chapter 9, I think, comes to mind. Let a man deny himself 
and come after me. You have to deny your very self. You know, doing what is faithful to the living and the true God. And in this case, you know, Pilate, I don't think, probably was thinking of Jesus as the living and the true God, but he certainly clearly had a right thing to do. And yet, it wasn't important. It's not, it wasn't important enough for him to deny who he was and take any chances on you know, risking Rome's uh, disapprobation or, or compromise of his position. This comes first. I am Pilate, the governor of Jerusalem, a Roman governor. Before anything else, I'm sticking with that. And if an innocent man's got to die, oh well, so be it. And that... I think I think we can all understand how you know that's a that's for Pilate. That's a really maybe a, a weighty choice, but there's no getting away that it's 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 absolutely an evil choice to, to to be loyal to your own sense of who you are and what you are, to the exclusion of what is right, is a horrible thing. Pilate's guilty no matter what he says. And again, it's this it's this. We know what's true. We know what he should have done, and the pathos of the situation is that he can't do it. In God's providence, he can't do it. He, he just doesn't have the power. But even it, in part of God's providence is what's going on this side of eternity in the hearts and minds of men. He can't make a choice that's that hard for him to make. He cannot be the man, He can another figure you know, from Scripture, he can't be the man who discovers the pearl of great price and sells all that he has to obtain it. That's that's what Jesus calls us to. That's what the Holy Spirit enables us to do in God's sovereignty. And that's what, humanly speaking, none of us want to do. We don't want to give up ourselves. We don't want to, to take the hard but good road. Now, of course... There's all sorts of things we could say about what Pilate didn't understand. I'm sure he did not grasp that he was crucifying the actual and true Jewish Messiah. But he knew he was making an awful choice. And if, if that's what I got to do, that's what I got to do, because that's who I am. We'll stop there and come back to this issue of Jesus not defending himself and go on with the rest of the chapter. Uh tentatively next week, uh, Ray or Ty, I, I, you know, with faith given, you know, if, if everything goes according to the schedule, I'm not sure what I might run into this week, so I may ask somebody to, to be on standby for next Sunday, but my intention is to pick this up next Sunday morning. So thank you all, and let's get ready for worship.